Welcome to Snakes and Funerals. This is your host, Evan Morgan, uh, and I have my co-host, Eli Berger, here with me. Good afternoon, Eli. Hello. Uh, glad to be back in the saddle here after a little bit of a, a break, um, but uh, yeah, I think it's going be a good episode. Today's uh, topic is uh, Takeshi Kitano, uh, specifically three films that he made in the mid-2000s, which form a kind of autobiographical trilogy, uh, films that interrogate uh, his persona both as an actor uh, and as a sort of behind the camera as a director uh, that explore his like aesthetic preferences and I think to a certain degree his uh, limitations. Uh, And I think they ask, I think, weirdly unsettling questions about the relationship between uh, movies and life, which... Um, I hope we'll we'll get into, but they're also quite uh, wild movies. Uh, at least the first two, anyways. Um, the first is uh, Takeshi's, which he made in two thousand five, uh, and then the second film, uh, Glory to the Filmmaker, from two thousand seven. Both of which I'd venture to describe as comedies, though uh, there's more going on than, than that generic label I think might suggest, and also their uh, actual ability to generate humor um it is maybe variable let's say uh and then the the last film uh in the bunch is achilles and the tortoise uh, which he made in 2008 uh which is in a, mo- a mode kind of closer to his like 90s melodramas uh which i really like like uh, kids return or a scene at the sea um but even those early earlier ones uh seem to me rather uh, despairing, I think, in a way. And there aren't many films, I think, about filmmakers that are, I think, quite as, uh, I don't know if pessimistic is the right word as these, but unsettled about the relationship between the the artist and his work uh, as these films. So um, I think they'll be interesting to discuss. Eli, do you have any opening opening thoughts? Uh, yes. Um, well, first I'd just like to give some uh, background on Kitano for, for people who aren't maybe as as familiar. He uh, started as a comedian. Uh, That's why he is uh, still to this day often referred to as Beat Takeshi, uh, both at home and abroad. And um, from what I gather, you might know him more as a comedian uh, and and a uh, TV personality, uh, you know, if you're in Japan compared to his directorial works, um, but I, I can't verify that, obviously. So, yes, he's an actor, comedian, director, of course, uh, writer, poet, painter, as well as especially seen in the third movie, uh, one-time video game designer of the worst video game ever oh, made. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. And <laughs> he also appeared in Yakuza 6, uh, the video game, which is funny because he hates... A much better video game, I assume. Yeah, but... Enough about that. I think I like these films more than you, and I obviously I don't want to speak for you. Uh, you can, but I, I think I, that's I safe to assume. Think that there is a lot of fertile ground uh, here, even if one has more reservations about these films than I do, because I am more, I think, 
wholeheartedly in, in approval of uh, what Katana is doing here. Uh, but yeah, take it away for Takeshi's then, which uh, I just want to point out that it is Takeshi's uh, with the S, then the apostrophe. <laughs> Yeah, I, why is there an apostrophe at the end of this title? Because there are two Takeshi Katanas in this movie, and it's both their movies. Uh, yeah, their so movies. is yeah. the is the like the possession here that the possessive is indicating the movie? Is that what you? Because otherwise, it makes no sense. But anyway, it's a minor point. But I've always it's, wondered why it had the apostrophe. No, it's because the there's you know he plays two characters, and and so it is both those characters are acting in the possessive of it is both their movie that's fair, how i interpret fair that. enough fair enough uh, okay well as you said uh this is a movie in which katano plays uh dual roles uh which are uh, delineated by his hair color so i don't know if it's helpful at the outset to establish that uh for the sort of katano filmmaker role uh the his presence in the movie as a very clear analog of himself uh who starts the movie as a film director who uh, is sort of uh, arriving on set uh, for a movie that he's working on is the dark-haired Kitano. Uh, and as the movie goes along, it slowly introduces a, a second Kitano figure who is uh, has blonde hair. Uh, and so uh, I guess I can call that the, the blonde Kitano. Um, and the, the premise of the movie, at least through the first half of the movie uh, is that you have these two Katanos who are both uh, working in the film industry. The blonde Katano is working as a bit character actor. Really. He works in a convenience store to make ends meet, but is going to auditions to try to break into the movies. Uh, and he is uh, at a casting call uh, when he meets the dark-haired Katano, who is the the sort of analog for the real Katano um, in real life. Uh, and the movie, I think, suggests that it's going to go into some kind of, like, uh, stalker kind of territory or something like that, where you're going to have maybe a little bit like uh, that movie Fan about uh, Shah Rukh Khan, where you're going to have a, a sort of look-like character become obsessed with... Uh, this uh, filmmaker who looks like him, but the movie sort of spirals off into increasingly surrealistic territory as it goes on. Uh, and I think it's instructive that the movie was apparently initially uh, going to be titled fractal, uh, which I think describe or helps sort of describe the structure of the film, which after the first half becomes increasingly, oriented around all of these like resonances and doublings that occur, but is not really tethered to any kind of uh, clear narrative logic. Uh, and so I think where I have a hard time some, in some ways entering the film is tracing what's actually happening in any given moment. And I suspect for you, Eli, the, um, the sharpness of each individual moment is just is enough for you. And there are many, I think, very, very sharp moments in this movie. But what I'm, I think, most intrigued by in the film is Takeshi's own, or Kitano's own uh, sort of interrogation of his screen persona here, and specifically his Yakuza persona, which I think he uh, does not seem very comfortable with, uh, to say the least. Well, I, I agree with you there. Um, 
but I, I, I do have a, a couple quibbles with what you said. One, I, I think it's important to point out that beyond uh, his uh, dissatisfaction with the uh, Yakuza persona that he sometimes plays, which, of course, goes into some really funny stuff with the <laughs> people who pl play the Yakuza in this movie. Um, his character, the, the director character, is a schmuck. He's a total prick. Um, he does not paint himself in a flattering light. But I, I think that that is less um, self-flagellation for uh, like trying to atone for how he is. I don't think that is actually how he is. Uh, as much as making the version of himself uh, such a jerk so that uh, the blonde Kitano can um, be more uh, likable and interesting as this is what it would be like if my career had never taken off. Uh, also, I, I, I just want to say that I don't think that this movie would be successful just on a moment-to-moment -moment level. And I do think it is that fractal nature of this film, which is very different from any of, of his other films that I've seen. Uh, even something based on um, sort of sketches like we'll see in Glory to the Filmmaker, um, the editing really um, chews all the conventions of a Katano film, other than when it is purposely parodying those conventions uh, with the Yakuza stuff. And very early on, you see uh, moments from later in the film yeah. um, coming up very briefly as if uh, time is splitting into itself. Uh, and then as it goes on, you might wonder, is this uh, a dream or not? And I don't think that there's a puzzle to be solved here uh, as it is more just... Um, meant to be uh, things that play off each other for a sometimes thorny effect on um, the viewer. Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, the fundamental, like, organizing principle is, is, like, associative more than anything. So I think you're right that there isn't a... You can't map out what's happening in the film. And even those initial sort of cuts that you see to things that happen later in the film, like initially they seem maybe like they're flash forwards. Once you get far enough into the film that you realize that you're seeing the same sort of visual material that you saw briefly in these little snippets earlier. But then the film again, constantly sort of doubling in on itself as you suggest so that it's, it's not clear that any of that stuff that's happening later in the film is actually like temporally, later than what's happening earlier in the film per se. They're just the, the editing is based on associations of, uh, like color and images and sounds. Uh, you know, I think particularly of that moment where, um, the Blancatano, I think it's when he first shoots someone or he's dreaming about shooting someone and we see him, uh, like, in the full-on Kitano as Yakuza, like with the sunglasses and the the suit and everything, shooting, and then it cuts to uh, an image of him 
as the sort of like schlubby convenience store worker sleeping in his apartment dreaming and the sound of the the gunshots continues on the soundtrack and he's just sort of pulling a uh like a trigger on a gun that isn't actually in his hand because he's just now dreaming in his apartment and the movie seems to like operate on on that kind of principle of of association i think yeah and uh then you see he has uh the poster of a movie in which Kitano is blonde and wearing sunglasses. Hell, wearing hell that is not a real yeah. movie. Hell Heat, yes. Hell Heat, sorry. But yeah. it could be. And, and, that, and that, of course, is next to the greatest bobblehead ever made, which I want one, although I think the point of the movie might be that I shouldn't. Anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, with that um, association and, and disassociation element, um, I, I think the earliest, in in terms of the blurring of is, is this his fantasy or is this what is actually going on, is in the mahjong parlor uh, after he clearly doesn't get the part, and they wake him up and he says you got the part, and then he turns into the mahjong parlor, and it's your it's your turn to play. I think that this movie thrives on its repetition uh, and and the variations in its repetition. Um, A great example of that is the, uh, the noodle place. We see Mm -hmm. that very early on. um, And we see it as something that our uh, blonde Takeshi Katano should not be seeing. You know, that, that is our impression of it. But then later that keeps, uh, that becomes part of the audition and, after that, it becomes real place, and uh, it it constantly morphs as it goes on uh, to the point where uh, you're wondering: is, is this supposed to be a gag? And to an extent, it is, but it, it is also very unsettling in its rhythms, and and I think that uh, I do want to call this movie a comedy to an extent, because I think some of it can be pretty funny, but a lot of it has such structure of a bit that with that repetition and the sort of uh, fractured editing seems like it's, you know, just taking the structure of a joke and using it for something else, which is a lot weirder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that that description of it. And ultimately, I think what gets unsettling in the movie is that as it goes along, it does become quite violent. Um, and I think the violence in this one is probably the most kind of upsetting in any of Kitano's films. I mean, he's definitely uh, known for the like sudden bursts of violence in his 90s films and these so he sort of will lurch from these lyrical moments and something like sonatine which is um, clearly a, a key touchstone film in in this film um the sort of film within the film here uh most closely resembles uh sonatine in his uh among his other works um and anyways, he he will here do the same kind of thing where he'll veer very quickly into um, violence. But it's by contextualizing it in this sort of like schlubby uh, convenience store worker's life, it doesn't have the same it, – it's sort of not uh, – 
protected by the like genre conventions. And so when eventually the blonde Katano character goes on like a killing spree and just starts like, I mean, they just like start shooting people like in a bank and there's like killing random like civilians. Like it's, it is weirdly unsettling in a way that uh, makes the humor that's present in the film, uh, I think take on an edge that uh, as you're suggesting, it makes it so that the movie does not function entirely as a comedy and it's, it's doing something else. And I think it's, it's concerned with the way that Katano's image of the Yakuza and what his sort of uh, presence uh, on screen as this violent character does to people that are this person that is a, a fan of him who um, sort of takes on his persona and starts enacting those kinds of uh, violent actions in, in a context that is, though related to the sort of genre of the Yakuza film bleeds more uncomfortably into what is recognizably real life in this film. Katano um, gives, I think a good deal of screen time, especially in the latter half to performances um, like on on stage performances by uh, other people. Um, uh, Akira Mira, you know, it's the, Obviously, I think the highlight of that, but you also have the dancers and, and the guy who is the uh, tough Yakuza guy in one scene, the, the bald guy. And then he's a, a, a dancer in another scene. Um, I, I do like that there is seemingly little context to that, but... Uh, it doesn't try to shoehorn in, and because the film is so strange anyway, I think that it works. Uh, oh, and that's also paired with that weird CGI caterpillar. Oh, yeah. so obviously fake. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. This yeah, I mean, movie. what other what other filmmaker would, like, yeah, have the, like, I don't know if it's quite 10 minutes long, but it feels like a pretty extended sequence of just like a tap dance number, like in the back half of the film that then explodes into a shootout. But for like no reason, like there's no reason there's a tap dance number in the film, except that like earlier on the director Katano character is walking around the studio and meets some people rehearsing a dance number. And so you get again, that kind of like association, this thing that's happening earlier in the film, this rehearsal comes back up later, but you do almost get the sense that Kitano like decided that he wanted to include a tap dance member in this film for whatever reason. And then just was sort of like, well, it's going to come, you know, at the 90 minute mark. So we're just going to have someone rehearsing tap dancing in the first 10 minutes. And then it's going to sort of echo into the, the later part of the film. Uh, and yeah, there are a lot of, a lot of moments like that, um, that crop up that are sort of, uh, almost standalone sequences. Uh, yeah, you know, like there are a lot of um, great, uh, very crowded shots in this movie uh, of Katano and uh, the supporting cast, or sometimes actually just the supporting cast uh, in in the car, uh, in, in the taxi sequence, that that dream one, the weird apocalypse thing. Yeah, I wanted to mention. Go back. Oh, yeah, and we can go back to that. Um, and then when he's killed all these people, they come back and again these uh, very crowded shots in another car or in a door frame. And no matter how he shoots at them, they are not staying dead. They'll be back in the next scene, and that is very funny. But it also um, 
I think works better again as a comparison with something like Sonatine, where he's obviously such, obviously such a ruthless uh, and precise killer uh, that it, it feels like a joke about his uh, impotence in life. That in, even in his uh, dream sequences of trying to be a Takeshi Kitano character. <laughs> He is failing because no matter what, they're going to come back. And they'll even have the wounds that, you know, would be there if you shot them. But they'll be fine. You know, it is uh, like, you know, I was going to say it's like a nightmare, but it's not. Because I wouldn't call this movie uh, a horror movie by any means. Uh, But... Just like it has the pretense of being a comedy at, at some points, I think it also, at other points, has the pretense of being some psychological horror thing. Like, it, it isn't, but it could be and if it was done a bit differently. Yeah, I think that's that's right on. I mean, the the thing that makes the film feel like it has an almost, like, nightmarish Ouroboros kind of quality is, as you, I think, suggest, the, like, constant return of this violence and that he's, <laughs> yeah, he is, like, constantly killing the same, like, ten people over and over again, um, which is, it is both funny and upsetting. And I think the the film that I thought about watching it again this time which I don't think it had really popped up in my head previously uh, while watching it was um, David Lynch's Inland Empire, um, which is a very different film in in many ways, obviously. Um, But I think it has uh, a somewhat similar uh, uneasy balance between being kind of like horrifying and also just kind of taking the piss a little bit with these ideas um, that he's playing with. And I think there is a, there's a little bit of a nightmare logic, even if the, the feel of the thing doesn't it doesn't feel like a nightmare it sort of follows the same the same logic i think you know i, I haven't seen inland empire it's one of the couple liches ah. i haven't seen um actually i think it might be the only one i haven't seen at this point anyway um i did think of lynch in a couple moments not i think maybe the i don't want to go too far in this comparison mm-hmm. because i mean comparisons to lynch are, are right. I think generally unwarranted but there is a um close-up of uh let's call her audrey hartburn her lips <laughs> oh yeah uh this weird couple this young humphrey couple. avocado <laughs> yeah or sometimes gregory punk and audrey hartburn yeah that there's a close-up on her lips uh i believe this is um right after he shot her boyfriend and that close-up looks like something from like wild at heart or lost highway um so that's funny that you said that but uh i mean the there's one image in this film that sticks out to me more than anything else uh even even before rewatching it this is the image that i'm curious uh, this can be the same one for me well go ahead i'm curious though i have one that i have the same same feeling about so yakuza and the spaghetti Oh, okay, no, but that is high up there, and I'm glad you mentioned it. So go, and then I'll tell you what mine is. But I mean, it, that's just if I had to pick one, because yeah. I wanted to definitely single this one out. Um, it is so striking, and I'm not going to try to suggest some uh, psychoanalysis of it, because I don't really have any, uh, but I, I do love the way that his bloody face blends in with the pasta sauce. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as, then as we see him eat it, I don't know whether it's supposed to be this is actually just bad pasta or 
Is it? Uh, I mean, I've had pasta in Japan. Let me tell you, it's not very good. But I, I, can imagine, I don't think. Or you know, he probably isn't doing well for himself. You know, uh, or is it you know disgust? Which is I. I wasn't sure, and I think it's supposed to be ambiguous like that. Uh, but yeah, that's what I think most sticks out to me as an image. That mm-hmm. or him as the clown that's repeated a lot. Uh, well, because yeah. there's so much that could be in, read into, you know, playing the tragic clown. Well, I think we should, I think we should come back to the clown, the clown bit in a little bit because I think it comes back at the end, and I think there's maybe some interesting stuff happening with, with the clown stuff. Um, but just to go back to the spaghetti image, I mean, I think that, like, I agree. I don't think there's really any, like, psychological weight to that image. I mean, it's a, a sort of upsetting and viscerally strange image. But I think the the thing that is driving that image is, like, everything else in the film, this, like, associative thing. It's like a graphic association. Um, sure. You know, you've got this red uh, and the yellow of the spaghetti sort of has this fleshy look. And when you superimpose it over that guy's bloodied face... Um, yeah, I mean, to me, it seems like it, it's really just primarily graphic. But the image um, that I was thinking of, and I was wondering if you were maybe going to mention, is the uh, shootout towards the end that as the, it's sort of shot from above, like in a bird's eye view of these, like, you know, six people on the ground yeah. shooting each other at night. And the muzzle flashes from the guns um, suddenly become constellations. Oh, yeah. That, uh, in the sky. That's a really great moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is as, yeah, that is as good as just about any moment in any T- uh, Takeshi Kitano film, I think. Uh, you know, though there are others that I certainly love more. Um, that is a, a quite striking image. And it recurs, I think, three times. Like, you, they sh- first shoot each other, and it's the uh, Big Dipper, and they shoot each other again, and it's, I don't know, some other constellation, and they the, the muzzle flashes, like, ascend to the, the heavens. It's... Uh, Again, it, why it belongs in this movie, I'm not quite sure, but it does. It is a very striking idea. Uh, in any case, you know, I'm just thinking that the scene where the woman tries to shoplift and then he says, "No, you can't do that," and they go through this thing with paying for like a uh, a pack of gum or something. Uh, that is a scene that I think would fit really well in our next film. Uh, th- that one, it's a very funny scene. But I think because that just seems like a gag by itself, that that actually stuck out to me as uh, I'm not really sure how that one fits in other than for her to show up again later as someone who sort of torments him in his nightmares. Right. Uh, And she also doesn't she also like bring up money again later like she sort yeah. of is doing the With same the bank thing robbery, it's like, yes that's right no this is a million again i want two million right when her character is is maybe the character that i am least able to place in context of the film i don't know if you have an idea of like who she is like initially we meet her and she's like uh i think she's like a well, she's like not exactly like a loan shark or something but she's like somehow bankrolling uh, the real Kitano, the director Kitano's, like, gambling habits. And she first is, like, yelling at him to, like, pay interest back on a loan, I think. Um, but then she – I think she shows up in the studio as well. Um, and I don't know. And that, that actress recurs in a bunch of Kitano films. She's, yeah. like, one of his, like, you know, stock actors. And she plays a big role in Achilles uh, and the tortoise. Yes. Um, and anyways, I, I thought it was interesting that he, he gives her such a prominent place in the movie, but she is the most kind of, um, like of the, of the kind of main recurring characters in the film. The one that is, I think least clearly tied to, 
um, any kind of, or she has the least grounding in the sort of early parts of the film before it goes off into the more, um, you know, fractal territory. So I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on what her role is? But I think just another way to show um, Lon Katano's general inadequacy. Mm. I, you know, I, I think if there's a key to solving this movie, it is what really separates, you know, both men from each other. Like, how did one become successful and the other not? Certainly, I, I think while, um, you know, in, in, in real life, obviously, I esteem Takeshi Katana very highly. In this movie, I don't know that there's anything to suggest that he is a genius or like a great actor. Other than that, that he's doing very well for himself. You mean in the context of the movie? In, in the context yeah. of um, yeah, what we see in terms of his filmmaking, um, you know, we, we don't necessarily see... We're not, we're not given uh, a look at uh, him as a great artist. We're well, given a look uh, as at him as an asshole. Well, yeah, and if anything, the art that we see in the film is sort of like Urzat's katana right i mean it's yeah. like the the key scene where we see him as like actor performer within the context of the film is that set that's clearly the set from sonatine but instead of actually having gone to okinawa they're just like green screening it in and um he makes a comment about that uh at some point that is just like oh we're not really you know this isn't really okinawa we're just gonna you know fill it in with the green screen and i think um it, it does feel like it's sort of like the the laziest possible version of of what Katano could be as a filmmaker is sort turn of off, what the turn off the cicadas and the lights they're too loud and <laughs> yeah. bright it's like that he's so pampered exactly yeah yeah and so yeah uh, what besides I think good fortune and maybe implying a non-existent tie to really shady people mm -hmm. separates them you know. Mm -hmm. So, okay, there is another uh, question I think they had about the film that sort of maybe brings us to the the ending, uh, if we want to go there, um, sure. which is the, the film opens with this image that is radically out of context of the rest of the film until the very end. And even then, I don't know that it, it makes a ton of sense uh, within the context of everything else that's happening, which is uh, basically this image of like what looks like a bunker during World War II. Uh, that's been uh, like bombed out and there's again bodies everywhere so that image does recur uh, in the film um, later on of these kind of bodies strewn everywhere um, but not specifically in a war context and yeah. Kitano is a one of the, the bodies on the ground who is actually not dead yet and a American GI like walks up to him and sort of is staring at him uh, and that's the opening of the film before you get the, the title card and then we don't see any of that uh, World War II uh, imagery again until the very end. I think it's the second to last shot of the film. Um, it returns to that image of the American GI, and he suddenly like pulls his gun up and points at the camera. Um, and I've always just well, thought he's like at a spa or something when before that, before it cuts away to the American GI, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Isn't it when he's getting his like back? tattooed for the like yakuza yeah the fake tattoo yeah fake tattoos yeah for the yakuza role he's like laying down and again kind of like pampered look going on yeah. and then yeah you get that cut to the the gi 
But what I think is really odd about that is everything else in the film that has to do with the kind of like violence that is present, uh, I think is very clearly, there are very clear antecedents in his filmography, Sonatine, as we've mentioned, being the key one that recurs throughout. It's really odd to me that he makes World War II like the opening thing of this movie, because as far as I know, I think I've seen all his films prior to uh, Takeshi's in his filmography. Like World War II doesn't figure in any of them. And Merry so, Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Ah, there you go. That must be the connection. I was thinking films he directed, but I think you're right. I was, I was wondering why he did that, but well, I was going to. I'm not sure you, if that's why he did it, but it is. I believe. Well, that the makes first sense. Serious acting role. Okay, well right? that makes sense now. That, yeah, no, that's a that's perfect. I was wondering. I was going to ask what you thought it was, and I think that's that's exactly right. Yeah. I don't know for sure, but that's my guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, he's, he's again, yeah. just sort of tied to the violence in the film. I mean, he, that's his most sadistic character in some ways is his, his role in that movie. So, Yeah, Pikeshi's. Uh, very good film. Was not well received. <laughs> no. His next film was definitely not well <laughs> received. Maybe even worse. Um, <laughs> but... I really like it, so um, shall I... Um, yeah, let's take a little break, and yeah. then we can come back and jump into Glory of the Filmmaker. All right, uh, our second film is Glory to the Filmmaker. And to me, this is a film that reminds me of certain corners who would reject a Jerry Lewis movie. And this also bears resemblances to, I think, his earlier comedy career and also his 1994 film, Getting Any. Um, but because I think people, at least you know, people who would see films at film festivals, are, or were at the time at least, accustomed to Catano making the movies that he made in the 90s, this is so different from those. Although it does poke fun at them, as we'll get into. But it, but it is so different um, in both style and tone that I, I don't think that it was really even given a fair chance because it is one of the funniest movies I've seen in quite a while. Um, but yeah, let, let me go into what it's about. He, uh, Katano, is playing himself again and he wants to get away for making uh, gangster movies. And I'm not sure if this is intentional or not, but it's funny that in that Yakuza scene very early on, uh, the character that he's fighting with looks like the protagonist from the Yakuza games. That could be a complete coincidence, but it was just funny to me. He <laughs> looks very similar to him. Anyway, yeah. And he cares... So, Kitano 
carries around this life-size wooden doll of himself. And every time he goes to make another genre of movie and it doesn't go well, the doll is either killed or commits suicide. <laughs> and then later on the film, Katana will be playing a character and then that character will switch for the doll seemingly for no reason at times. And it makes me laugh every single time. <laughs> I don't know that you like this movie as much as I did, but I think this movie is a success. Well, so I will say I was very uh, taken with the film for the first, I don't know, a half hour or so. Um, it starts with, I think, a sort of wonderful image, um, which is of that doll that you describe um, going into an MRI machine at like a doctor's office um, and going through a bunch of uh, medical tests on the doll uh, and the doctor sort of like talking to the doll as if it's Kitano. Uh, and I think that sequence ends with him telling the doll, like, next time you got to send the real Katano, like, not the doll Katano. And I, I loved that. And I think um, it's worth saying, I think, that the structure of the film is a, a bunch of little skits, uh, at least initially, um, of, as Eli, you're suggesting, uh, Katano trying out different genres. And so, um, you know, it's there's sort of like a narration that's describing like, Oh, okay. Well then Katano decided to try like a Zadoichi movie, which is parroting the Zadoichi movie that he made. Um, or you see, the... and they're like, why doesn't he make Zadoichi too? <laughs> right. Um, and then he makes like an Ozu parody, which actually I, the Ozu parody sequence did have me like in stitches pretty much. I will say, um, I like how before it goes to the Ozu parody, it's like, to make real movies that Vim Vendors would like. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, and no. then it's in, in the Ozo parody, by the way, is in black and white, and it is uncanny. <laughs> so funny. Yeah, it's pretty good. And then I love how the end of that is, uh, the end of that whole sequence is like, you know, the narrator again saying, like, it flopped. Who wants to watch a boring film with 30 minutes of people just drinking liquor and tea? Like, well... And then there's this one of a melodrama and that it ends for them on a pier and one of them has an umbrella. And I swear that shot could be something from a classic, like, 1950s, 1960s Japanese melodrama. Yeah, like a Kenosha movie or something. Yeah. Well, the, the, like, melodrama that is the, what's the one in the film that's like a, he makes like a melodrama about the 50s. He's like, oh, like, movies about the 50s, like, all the rage now. And he makes like a, it's just like horribly depressing movie about like an impoverished, abused child or something, which is very, again, like that kind of. And then it ends with, no one would want to see this. (laughs) Right, exactly. And he throws the dummy off the pier. Yeah. So, I mean, there is a lot of stuff like that, that especially at the beginning when it is working in this this more clear kind of like skit mode where each skit is a genre, um, you know, that that stuff does work pretty well for me. I think it's a pretty bold idea to basically decide to make a movie where the key, the like, core concept is to just shoot a bunch of bad movies and like make those bad movies be your film. Uh, but then somewhat like, uh, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, it's, it stops using that explicit structure. And I don't know exactly how to describe what happens. It's not like all of the different skits bleed into each other. Exactly. Because there are things that don't ever like recur again, like you know, for example, like the the Ozu parody stuff, like that's a sort of discrete segment in the film and doesn't really come back. 
But it's sort of like it starts as a skit that's like, okay, it's going to be like a sci-fi film. And then it just doesn't end. It just keeps kind of like going and expanding. And like the Yakuza stuff starts happening in the the sci-fi film. And it becomes a little bit more like the second half of Takeshi's where um, it is just a little more freeform. And I think that's a little bit where I'm not sure that I I was quite on the film's uh, wavelength as much. So I can see you not being on that wavelength and... I, I like I get that. I don't think it's right to say that it's like Takeshi. I don't think it is. I, I think Well, I it guess just that it's it's more associated like a classic gag comedy. Like as I think I mentioned earlier that something like uh like a Jerry Lewis movie or you know, Katano's earlier work, his earlier comedy work, that's what or like a WC Fields thing. Uh that's where this is more in line with Whereas I think Takeshi is, is going for something close enough that I can see why you would say it, but I, I still don't think it wor- works as a comparison. Yeah, I mean, the the effect in Takeshi's is, is definitely very different than the intended effect here. Um, it's just, it, just it, it loses the discrete quality that it has early, early on. Um, sure, especially yeah. if you don't know, as we didn't know, that it was coming, that you were wondering, okay... When's the next one? It, right, you exactly. Wonder that, and then you realize, oh, it's the this is the rest of the movie now. I was more okay with that once I realized it than I think you were. I don't know. Um, well, so I'd be curious if you could try to des- describe what happens during that part of the movie because I would be very glad to because uh, <laughs> I don't have, think I possibly could. So first, we have a we have some pro wrestlers who run a terrible. <laughs> roach-ridden uh, ramen shop, and there are these two women who are going to be the focus of, uh, like, half of the second half. Uh, there they are now, some of the main characters. And <laughs> there's this great um, brawl scene that is these wrestlers beating the shit out of each other in the restaurant, and then they go out of the restaurant, as these women try to finish their really just horribly disgusting meals. Threat, uh, threatening ramen shops is like a recurring theme here. I'm suddenly realizing it. Is there one in Achilles? I don't think there no, is. No, no. But at so, least in these first two. True. Um, and then, how, how do you describe the character that Katana plays in this second half? I don't even Because he's amazing. Like, it'll just be a random change between shots of him as his human self and then as the doll, and they will comment on it. And there are even moments where you, where there is not a, uh, <laughs> it doesn't go to another shot, and some guy just picks up Katano and replaces him with a doll or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think... It also has the moment where it starts as like this Matrix parody, and then <laughs> I um, forgot about the Matrix parody. Yeah, the they go to just beat him up physically, but every time they go to do that, he just turns into his doll, and parts start to gradually chip off, mm-hmm. and then it turns into the parody of the guy at the 2006 World Cup who headbutted the other guy. Like, what the fuck? 
yeah, I don't know. So it's very funny. I mean, uh, yeah, it has a guy as Napoleon doing something, uh, you know, teaching sex to these to him, and it is the weirdest thing. Well, and there's also that like sequence that uh, is like a like two guys with like giant prosthetic like red dicks. Like that, that moved me to tears. So beautiful, <laughs> I love it. That is that is what cinema was made for. <laughs> They're like doing like a guitar solo, like air guitar solo with their like giant red prosthetic dicks. Yeah, and, and the and the way that <laughs> it, it's like the same two seconds that are played back and forth and then added this fake guitar music to it. (laughs) So I'm not sure in the second half, like I'm not going to read much into that. Into the red I don't think there, yeah, look, I, I don't think that there is much to read into about what Katano thinks of his career. Oh, I actually other than this is him going back to his roots as a um, you know a, a very funny director and a very funny person. So uh, I think so I, I can see that you wouldn't like it from that perspective because the first half is a lot more clear with that. Yes, well, I think though in general, like the movie is, and I think this will definitely come up again when we get to Achilles and the Tortoise. Like, though it's it's very broad and you know aiming for humor. I'm not sure that it all quite lands the same way for me as it does for you, but nonetheless, like a funny movie, like there is a, this like lingering, um, like dissatisfaction with Katano's own sense of his like personal vision. Like, I feel like the question at the core of this movie on some level, um, and it, it, it recurs in Achilles is like, what is a personal vision? Like, is it necessary to have one? And like, can you be an artist without a personal vision? And I think the thing that Kitano, the anxiety that uh, is the starting point for all of the comedy here is Kitano's own anxiety about whether or not he like actually has like, a personal vision as a filmmaker and all of those um those parodies of the different genres at the beginning, I think make it very clear that he's like, he's sort of interrogating whether or not his persona fits into um, these various genres and can he like express himself in them. And so there is a way in which I think the, the, the comedy stuff that all happens in the second half of the movie, when it stops being these various genre parodies and becomes a kind of its own weird singular thing is a, a way of like reclaiming, that personal vision to say like, okay, well, I'm not really the Zadoichi guy. Like I'm not really the like outrage guy per se. Like what I really am, like the core of my personal vision is like the insane stuff that happens in the second half of, of the film. Like that's the progression. I I think I agree with you there. What I meant more was like the karate gag. Like, I'm not going to say this individual gag says something about sure you know, what he thinks of himself. But I, I do think that the fact that it just becomes this raucous comedy in the second half does suggest that, uh, if you ca- take it in context with the first part. Um, I think it succeeds a lot on timing and um, editing uh, of how each... Uh, each gag seems to last um, exactly how it should. Um, 
like, I don't really know how to talk about comedy too well, to be honest, other than saying, I think that this was funny, and, and here's, I guess, sort of why. Uh, it, it is one of those things where I might feel like I'm ruining it if I try to explain it too well in, in a way I, I don't feel with um, his more dramatic side. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But it's extremely funny. And I'm going to just repeat myself ad nauseum until you agree with me that there's not one bad <laughs> I mean, scene in this I, perfect movie. Not one bad scene. Every, no. every scene is perfect. Wow. That's every quite, scene is quite This okay. is why cinema was made, so that we could have wireframe Takeshi Katana running after them. Do you remember that? What's that the wireframe... I don't, oh, when they, bur when they burn his wooden doll, that's also him. Oh, and yeah. And he turns into <laughs> the wireframe. And, you know, these two are from, like, um, a Japanese Celine and Julie go boating, and they just have to wander into this. Are, though, are they aliens, though? Because, like, isn't it... Because like, there's also, like, a whole plot about, like, an impending apocalypse because some asteroids that, like, have their faces on them are, like... It 100% doesn't matter, and I don't <laughs> think that there is an answer. Yeah, I mean... Because they... One of them mimes... Uh, as the uh, duck puppet with the wireframe thing, the Terminator. And that's why that exists, is so there could be a gag. I mean, I, I don't know that this is this movie is as satisfying to think about as like Takeshi's, but uh, I can't deny that I really like it as a comedy. Mm -hmm. Well, and I will say um, that though it did lose me a little bit in that kind of long section in the middle i do think the the last um kind of oh, sequence the, the ending is is, unquestionably is great. really yeah. funny and very good uh and that is when it sort of returns back to all of those uh, discrete genre parodies at the beginning as the like asteroids are about ready to uh destroy the earth. Um, it's basically the same ending as Lars von Trier's Melancholia, which I thought was very weird. Um, but, but not so self-serious. Definitely funny. Well, I don't know. It depends how you, uh, but anyways, I don't want to get into Lars von Trier, but, um, definitely Such a less self, less okay. self-serious, uh, film for sure. But, uh, so all of the, the genre, uh, scenes that we saw earlier come back as like, the asteroid is about to destroy the planet and they're all like, you know, they see the asteroid like in the sky or whatever. They're all about to get incinerated. Um, and you know, I was kind of like, is the movie really going to go there? And like, yeah, it goes there. Like the entire world is destroyed by these asteroids. Like everyone perishes. And then from the ashes, <laughs> the title of the film like emerges in rock form, um, like a giant, like stone monument that says glory to the filmmaker. Uh, which is the sort of like uh, like mock epic quality of that it did. Uh, oh yeah, but what's even me. better is right after that. Right after it yeah, goes back to basically the beginning, and <coughs> Gatano is told that his brain is broken, and it's, then you see a film camera on the scan of his brain, and then that cracks in half, and that's how the movie ends. It's cinema has broken his brain. Yeah, I mean, I think that that pretty much. Uh, sums up the movie right there that it is it is the uh the emanations of uh a rather uh bedraggled brain i think 
and your mileage may vary on that. But I mean, there are movies that I think that the reason I'm not trying to say this in an insulting way. I feel like the reason you like them, just like I like this, is primarily because you just find them really funny mm-hmm. and entertaining, even though I don't like them. Uh, I'm not going to say what it is, but I think you can guess. I have no idea. Pedicab Driver. Oh, yeah. See, actually, you know what? It's funny you say that, because as I was watching this, I was actually I was thinking about a different uh, Hong Kong film that I know you don't like, which I quite like, uh, which is Chicken and Duck Talk. And I was like, I was wondering why... That's another example. I was wondering yeah. why you, like, so respond to this one, but then not to the, the broad comedy of Hong Kong. But I don't know. Comedy is very, you know... I don't uh, know. Very uh, particular. I will say, if this, if Glory to the Filmmaker had started with the restaurant scene, I might have been more put off. You know, if we're talking about comparisons to Chicken and Duck Talk. But because it happened, you know, like halfway into the movie, I, it was fine mm-hmm. for me. Yeah, I, I, probably less fertile ground for discussion than Takeshi's, but I, I'm glad that we talked about this because. I know uh, a couple of people who've seen this film who absolutely just do not like it and don't get it. And uh, I know even someone who will defend, you know, the other two films that we're talking about and think that they're great, um, but just didn't respond to this one. Uh, I'm not sure if, uh, personally, I was able to uh, express my fondness for this film in a way that will potentially sell other people on revisiting it, but... Um, uh, we did talk about the giant red dick guitar solo, though, and if that doesn't sell someone on seeing this movie, I don't know what possibly can. Exactly. Okay, well, should we take one more break, then, and then come back for Achilles and the Tortoise? Excellent. Okay, we're back with our uh, final film of the day, Achilles and the Tortoise. Uh, Unlike uh, the other two films, uh, especially the second one, uh, I think this one is emotionally devastating, to be honest. Uh, Agreed. I think it was sold, though, as a comedy, if I recall correctly, and that is... Like it, excuse me. Like it or not, that's not an accurate way to describe this film. Even though there are a couple of moments that I would maybe find funny, uh, but even then, it, it is certainly not a comedy. Uh, so some background: uh, Takeshi Kitano uh, really got into painting after he um, had. Uh, is either an accident or... Yeah, I think it was a motorcycle accident, right? Yeah, a motorcycle accident that also led to a stroke is what it was, yeah. Uh, and and as, as he recovered, uh, he learned how to paint, or, or if he learned... If he had already learned, he had certainly explored it more than he had before. Uh, and so in uh, Hana B, you see his paintings uh, as a character... Uh, in that film, you know, recovers or actually doesn't get back to full health, but as he is coping, he paints. And then 
this film is about the life of a painter from childhood to uh, you know, a late middle age where he's played by Gitano himself. <clears throat> and all the, or at least I think most of the paintings, if not all of the paintings that we see are done by Gitano. Uh, and while I personally don't think that this says much uh, about Gitano as a director, I think it says a lot about how he feels uh, of his uh, paintings. Hmm. Uh, which, which is to say, conflicted. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess I didn't really think about it as being specifically about his life as a painter. I mean, I definitely took it as more of his well, I'd be artistic life generally, your, but I, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think, like I said, with when we talked about Glory of the Filmmaker, like this is a film that I think is very much uh, animated by this anxiety about whether or not um, one as an artist has a personal vision and is it necessary or even sufficient um, to have a personal vision to be a successful artist because the, the arc of the film is, uh, it starts in this very actually like Kenosha-esque um, kind of, melodrama in the like 50s post-war japan um, can i just stop you yeah because it actually um if you recall starts with um well that's true with an animated sequence yeah that is the opening of the film and it, i had no expectation that the movie was going to open with an animation uh do you want to describe what it is i guess it is relevant because it is where the title comes from mm-hmm. um yeah, so it is a an animated sequence uh, of uh, Zeno's paradox of you know whether Achilles will ever catch up the tortoise. Now, I am actually not going to spend too much time on this uh, because, and at least I don't think we should, because personally, I even though it opens and closes the film with a reference to it, I. I feel like you would not notice too much if it wasn't there. I just feel remiss if I didn't explain that that is where the title uh, has relevance. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, the the rest of the movie makes, I think, the again, that anxiety about uh, this artist who's constantly trying to, um, like, be successful by finding a personal vision. Um, it makes that all very clear that you don't necessarily need that metaphor, but uh, yes, it does give the movie the title. So fair enough. But so after that animated sequence, uh, the movie opens, as you said, basically with his childhood, um, in a long sequence. I mean, it went on for far longer than I had anticipated. I mean, it's what 40 minutes of the film or something like that, um, that are uh, taken up by his childhood. And this painter is the son of a sort of like industrialist in this town, um, who is uh, very wealthy and interested in the arts, but is taken advantage of by the sort of like artistic community um, that he hangs out with. He's, mm -hmm. I think, the implication of the film is that he doesn't really have much taste as a sort of consumer of art, um, but he is very passionate about it, and so he is sold by these art dealers a number of um artworks that are perhaps subpar um and as a means of flattery they basically treat his son who is a uh the main character of the film who is an aspiring painter as if he's like a um a sort of like 
kid genius who will eventually like, you know, find full flower in, in uh, his painterly talents as he gets older. And so the, the film starts with um, the, the child basically being given this kind of destiny that I think everything else about how they treat his father suggests he probably isn't really, his talents don't necessarily uh, indicate that that destiny is, um, is really his. Uh, hey, that, can I, can I yeah. stop you there? Because this is interesting. I have a completely different interpretation. Really? That. I think that this is a movie about a young prodigy who um, finds that because of his circumstances and, and what he's uh, told he needs to do then to improve as an artist, um, it loses his early spark and becomes a, a more derivative and, and much less talented artist over time and, and um, to the point where it drives him essentially mad um, when as he's trying to capture uh, his uh, uh, initial childhood flowering again uh, throughout the rest of his life. Huh. So that's interesting that we had a completely different view yeah, of that. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I think it's... It's possible that he does have some like real creative spark at the beginning of the film and that the the social kind of pressures that are put upon him uh, kind of dissolve that and, as you suggest, make him a more derivative artist. I'm not sure that's entirely in conflict with my reading of the film, but I do think you read it as more definitively suggesting that he had like a real vision early on. I mean, I think... I was very caught up in the fact that the social world that the father moves in is designed basically to flatter and fleece him um, by giving him... So when his father, um, you know, goes bankrupt and then commits suicide, you know, they take his paintings, um, you know, after that and and sell them. And then eventually you you do see them in the gallery where he's told, uh, you know, as um, like a a third, like a 25 you know, something ish Mm -hmm. person that, uh, you are not good enough right now to have your works in here. And then he sees that, uh, flounder that he did as a child in there. I I do think that we are supposed to. Fair fair enough. Yeah. But I could, I mean, I can see where you're coming from, but I also think that that goes back to the larger point of how Catano thinks of his own paintings. Mm Mm-hmm. And maybe that also goes to what you think of his own paintings. Um, you know, are are the paintings in this movie that we see supposed to be good or in these? Well, that's. I, I mean, some of them are. Which ones are exactly? Some of them aren't which ones aren't? And, and that's in some ways the challenge of any any film like this about an artist, you know, a, a fictional artist that, and because the film, the in the context of the film, it's people are ambivalent or even duplicitous about the quality of his paintings. I think it is hard to get a read on. Um, See, the childhood portion with them, like, taking his paintings reminded me of, like, Scarlet Street. Yeah, I can kind of see that, but at the same time, like, all the other... like the paintings or not, right. I think that they are supposed Meant to be... Not necessarily the best paintings in the sure. world, but I think that that was Takano... Sorry, Takeshi Kitano saving his um, sort of A game for those, and then mm-hmm. as it goes on the paintings are purposely, you know, mired in imitation. Yes, very obviously so, yeah. Yeah. Whereas there's, I, I, I think, more of maybe not, you know, 
the filmmaker's own personal vision in those paintings, but trying to imagine what a child who had a personal vision mm-hmm. would do as a child. Mm-hmm. That that's how I look at it. Yeah, um, no, I think I think that's fair. I mean, the other thing too, I that, the whole film, but I actually think that the opening like forty five minutes or so, except for maybe something near the end, is maybe the film at its very strongest. I agreed. Um, but I do like what comes after. But yeah. Well, the only thing I guess I want to say about the about the sort of opening segment, then we can move on maybe to the sort of section where he's like a, a young man and then middle age or late middle age. Um, yeah. I do quite like that the the film employs that kind of now very cliche like bleach bypass kind of period color for that se- sequence in the forties. Like it looks like you know I don't know whatever like Hollywood prestige movie that like takes place in world war two, you know, where everything's kind of drowned out and it's like Browns uh, and whatever. Did you but see the DVD of it or the Blu-ray? The DVD. Okay. So there's a Blu-ray rip online, which I watched actually for it. Uh-huh. And you can tell it it's even stronger in that. Yeah. It, it is like unmistakable in that. That he's really playing up that like lack of color, all those like Browns and whatever. Yeah, there, there, there's a very strong tint to it. Yes, and then though the the paintings in that section are like vividly. I don't like. I don't. I assume there had to have been some digital manipulation to the paintings because sure. they stand yeah. out as like the only thing that isn't like drained of color. And um, I, I found it interesting that he contextualizes the the paintings that are like bright and they're all very like kind of pop art kind of colors. Um, around this like cliche of the like 40s like bleach bypass thing um i think suggesting i think maybe it it sort of uh, furthers your reading i think of the film of suggesting that those early paintings like do have some kind of life to them um because they do literally stand out as the only colorful things in this otherwise very like drab cliched looking kind of world i think cliched looking is maybe gives i i know i don't disagree I say that that sort of undersells how great a use of space Gitano well, still does. Yeah, yeah, so, like, it's not, it's not that it, great. Sure, I mean, agreed. It's, yeah. just, it's the color specifically. Like, I just, oh, yeah. you see that like kind of bleached out color palette, and it just reads like to me, anyways, like Hollywood prestige movie about World War II or like that era. And he's, and I think he's very consciously playing with that that palette. Uh, the the um, so the only real other moments of, of very bright color are, are with the, I don't know what you call it, maybe like a, a vagrant who who is also an artist. Mm-hmm. When he wears the uh, flowers on, on his head and puts on like flowers as eyes, those flowers are also much more vivid than they would be uh, based on the rest of this color mm-hmm. scheme. Um, and there's uh, a great moment where... You know they're uh, sketching together, and the guy complains that the buses won't, you know, go too fast, and so he can never get them in his sketches. And the kid says, "We'll just go in front of them, and they'll stop because that's worked in the, in the past." And then the bus driver just comes out and punches the other guy in the face, saying, "Like, get the fuck out of the way!" Um, and that is an uh, an early brush with the fact that. Um, people aren't going to be as tolerant of his uh, artistic uh, liberties that he, that he takes 
as a child. I mean, he was already sort of getting that with his, you know, cruel uncle and who adopted him. There's this really great um, dissolve um, in that first, uh, you know, third of the movie where his mother has died. I don't know exactly how she died, but the... Um, but half of her face is, is bright red with blood, and there's this dissolve uh, of uh, her corpse uh, in close-up to uh, the child and uh, the aunt and the uncle uh, at her gravestone. That really struck out, stuck out to me. Uh, and then in the scene after that, uh, you see that painting of her in the mirror, and that is sort of how, you know, things end with him being sent to an orphanage, and then cuts away to him as a young adult, and yeah, that scene, that sequence then of him as a, a young man, um, one of the things that stuck out to me the first time, and, and was in my head before I rewatched it, was him seeing that painting of the flounder, and I don't even know if he recognizes it. I was wondering anymore. the same thing. I, I get the sense that he doesn't. Like, he kind of just moves right past it, like it's just another painting on the wall. But the fact that, you know, that was deemed good enough mm -hmm. um, to be sold, you know, uh, speaks to that that child was sort of a different person from the um, person he is now, mm -hmm. other than the obsession with art. Right. Well, and, and I will say that whole section, the middle section with him as a, like a young man, I think that's where the movie is at its most like somber and, and quite. Uh, oh, I the think the last like, section is at the most somber. Oh, really? Well, so I, I think. But the, we'll get into that as it comes. Yeah. I mean, for me, the, the middle section is, you know, I, it's like literally features like a bunch of his artist friends dying in in the process of their creating the art. One of them, they oh, sort of, I just meant it's it's a strong competition for most depressing. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But yeah, I mean, so he sort of is he works in a like a little family owned like company or something, sort of his day job, and in his spare time, he like hangs out with these um, sort of young artists who want to be sort of radical modernist, uh, painters. And they, you know, go through a bunch of kind of schemes to try out various forms of like action painting and things like that. One of which results in one of their friends, um, dying. Uh, and then let's go over how that happened though. Because what's that? that? That's something where it's like, yes, it is tragic. But it was so obviously stupid, but I actually kind of find it funny in a way. Well, I, th I mean, it is funny, like, in the moment until you realize, like, moment, the door uh, opens uh, and the guy's body, like, comes, falls out. But you know, comes right after them doing their silly action painting. Right. And then, like, you, you know it's not going to go well. You don't necessarily know it's going to lead to that death. And I think certainly, even though I, I almost find it funny in the moment, right after is very somber and... Uh, well, I, I and like I think it when it emphasizes getting, yeah. the way that it's like a come down for all of them too, right? I mean, it sort of has that same effect on you as the viewer. Like it's funny and and whatever, and kind of joyous and a little ridiculous, and then like death just suddenly appears, and 
you know, after that point, I think in that section of the film, like there's a, there's a, a sense of promise maybe. Like, I don't think that these young people that he's hanging out with, like that any of them are great artists per se, but there's sure. a, a kind of promise in that section that is like very clearly snuffed out at that moment. And then one also of them, the, the promise to rebel against the um, very, you know, rigid structure of their art school. In, in a way. Right. And, and I think also it's, it's worth keeping in mind this was certainly this action painting had been done before in the, when this part of the movie takes place. Um, it, it had already been done before, but it wasn't as old as it would be now, you know? Right. Um, so it, it was still to an extent for them radical enough. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we're supposed to read them as being like, they're sort of, wannabe avant-garde type like they're aware of of what is currently avant-garde but there may be like you know two years behind or something like that is kind of the i feel like the vibe you're supposed to take from it like they're not wholly derivative or or at least they're not um they're aware of like the currents in modern art they're maybe just not trying to exactly something uh there's this great moment um when his uh, friends out of guilt, you know, commit suicide and uh, our main character, you know, he turns around to the camera and then it cuts, uh, you know, it's an actual cut in and then it cuts away to the body on the pavement. And that is beautiful. Kitano. Thank you for that. Yeah. That, that's that sequence when the guy um, kills himself by jumping off the bridge is, is the most upsetting thing in the movie for sure. Also, um, we, we, we mentioned um, the uh, color palette in, or the, like the tint in the first third of the movie after, uh, and I'd say that it's much brighter in the like action painting sequences. However, mm-hmm. uh, a- after um, the death, it gets very drab, but, and not like that. It's a different, almost... it's like blue gray instead of brown tan drabness. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the museum certainly has no life to it when, when you see that. Yeah. This movie doesn't have a lot of affection for like, uh, art dealers and galleries. It Let's does just not. put it that way. <laughs> and so I know I said that the third segment was the most somber, I, I and I stand by that. I also think that it is the one that made me laugh the most. It, that, and that's kind of why I was surprised you said that because it is the funniest. But it's both. Yeah, yeah. It's because there are some things that are. I think it's because when it really gets somber, it is just absolutely drenched with uh, grief and self-loathing. But then when it wants to get funny, it's really fucked up. But. <laughs> it is really fucked up. I'm glad you said that because it is – it's one of those movies that like after like now having sat with it for a little while, like it doesn't – I'm maybe not sensing how weird it is. But in the moment, they do some like pretty fucked up shit like you said, like for the sake of their art. So continue. <laughs> but I'm glad you mentioned that. Well, so it, th- this sort of starts with um, – it almost feels like he's the last – that, I mean, he's trying everything, certainly, but he's also maybe the only last person trying action painting by this point. Uh, and that—that that is how this segment sort of begins. He tries a bunch of different things, of course, but um, he's... At this point, it's not even that he's studying 
the old masters and trying to imitate them, and then that has, you know, um, a negative effect on his art. He's just trying anything that'll stick. Mm -hmm. But he'll also pull, when I say anything, he'll pull from some really disgusting places at times with the car accident and they go to sketch it. It's really funny, but geez. Yeah. I mean, it, it suggests a, I I think the, the last segment of the film is as, uh, as ambivalent about like an artist's relationship to the world as like any movie about an artist that I can think of. Like they basically go to that accident scene a guy is like bleeding out on the street, like asking for their help. And instead of helping him, him and his wife, who is like now his, who he met in the second segment, who's now his sort of like accomplice in all this, this attempts to all these attempts to um, become an artist, just like stand there and let the guy bleed out so that they can. Yeah. As you say, sketch him like that's yeah. But it's done in a way where you see a guy, like a witness, coming up to them from behind, and you see this guy, like, mouth agape, and then it does a reverse shot of them looking back to him, and then it's a cutaway to a newspaper about, like, art freaks take the <laughs> scene of accident. Uh-huh. So it's it's fucked up to talk about, but it's really done in a comic way. Yeah, it is funny in the moment, for sure. I just want to, this is extremely minor, and I might be reading too much into this. There's a uh, uh, part in the last... Uh, third of the movie where there's a paint one of his paintings looks exactly like the clown in um, oh yeah Takeshi's yeah you're right it does I know you're talking about I don't want to read too much into that but I just thought it was interesting to note based on our context Mm -hmm. how about the boxing scene (laughs) where he has his wife fight a boxer uh, yeah. Why fight? No, I mean, she gets beat up by the boxer and gets paint on her. Right, who's like wearing body. gloves that have paint on them. Yeah. <laughs> so fucked up. This, like, the sadomasochistic tendencies that are required for this guy to try to produce art are, um... But they're not on him, like, they're not on him, they're on his wife. Well, in that case, yes. Although, doesn't he get beat up a little bit, too? I mean, she's primarily the one getting, like, the shit kicked out. No, for, he for, doesn't. He, he doesn't? just stands okay. there and says, put more paint on <laughs> Yeah. Well, and then the, the uh, of all the kind of like weird, upsetting art freak stuff that happens in the, the second half or the last third of the movie, um, the one that is really disturbing is uh, his daughter, their daughter dies suddenly. And I'm not even really clear on exactly how that happens. Is it suggested that she committed suicide? I, th- I wasn't sure it could be that or like an accident. It could be one of those things where it's like, oh, she's become a prostitute now and she got killed doing that. Uh, like sort of, yeah. Like, uh, I wasn't sure if that was supposed to be like, uh, you know, this is the worst thing that's happened to her to become a prostitute, and then that's her fate. I I think it was left ambiguous. Yeah, so it's ambiguous, but there's definitely like a an like a seedy air to her death. I mean, over like the film. this is like a Thomas Hardy novel at yeah, times, a little you know bit. I mean? <laughs> yeah, in terms of how everything just keeps going to shit. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so his daughter is now dead, um, who who was basically sort of estranged or becoming estranged for them because she was tired of their, like, single-minded, her parents' single-minded focus on, on painting. Um, and so they go to the morgue where her corpse is to, like, identify her. 
and they're standing over her corpse and they like pull the sheet back to look at her face and his wife is is like you know very clearly visibly upset is crying at seeing her uh daughter's dead body and he the katano character pulls out a uh like a tissue and like places it over her the daughter's face and like takes out a lipstick and like makes like a death mask, basically yeah. from his and, daughter's face. You think face. at first that he's just going to put lipstick exactly. on her lips to make her look more alive, which is, I mean, it's tragic, but that's right. not a, a gesture, a touching gesture, yeah. perhaps. Yeah, uh, yeah. But yes, yeah, so then he uh, right before that, actually, I wanted to talk about something that happens right before. Okay, that. yeah, go ahead. Um, when he, I, I forget how he starts bleeding. I think he got beat up. Oh yeah, he got beat up because like like this yakuza type thought that he was skipping out on paying for a blowjob in the men's room, so he beat him up and took his money. So, yeah, he bleeds out on this piece of white paper, and he decides to then paint that and everything in this whole room from... I don't think we see the ceiling, but certainly everything else is completely red. Mm -hmm. And it's actually done in the the camera uh, spins as as it ascends upwards, and then that dissolves... To him painting the walls it's very beautiful yeah that's a, a really beautiful sequence yeah well i think and we the... see yeah and we see that afterward as um that is where he's i'm not sure it, he's grieving for a lot of things he's grieving for his wasted life for his daughter and for his ruined marriage uh, in in uh that red room and that is one of the most beautiful moments in katano um he's staring at a sunflower and then he burns this sunflower in a car and then there's a dissolve with his face onto it or like a double exposure of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is, I think as beautiful as anything else in his career is in those moments. Yeah. Well, and I was just going to say, I think like the, the whole feeling of the last third of the movie, I mean, it's, he almost is like a drug addict was like, it's almost like it follows the, the kind of patterns of like an addiction movie in a way in this, in the last third, like he just, he's ruining his life and everyone else's life around him because he's just addicted to trying to become an artistic success. And the final gesture of the film is him attempting to commit suicide, which he also fails at. Uh, and then he tries to burn himself to death as he's painting something as if that, that he keeps trying to put himself in danger, uh, in the last third of the movie, uh, to get inspired by painting and, and, uh, well, again, it's like uh, it's like kind of like a drug addict or yeah. something. Like he just he has to get more and more extreme to kind of like get the the high right that, that he thinks he yeah. needs, and he just it is literally uh, self immolation at the end. But he doesn't die, and he survives, and he's in like a full body cast except for one eye socket eye, yeah. that he can see through. Um, and eventually, he is out of the hospital, and he's uh, trying to sell a burnt coke can or something like some sort of soda can from the axe or the the suicide attempt i guess i thought that was a like a paint can could be a paint can maybe you're right it was some kind of can burnt can yeah um as again this sort of like modernist uh like art object um and this is after his wife's abandoned him and the film ends with uh his wife walking to him up on the street where he's trying to sell this just like on a street corner um and uh they basically walk off together, and I think the implication is that they are Happy definitively about. abandoning art at the end of this film. Uh, 
I mean, that's an ending where I, I honestly think it was just a matter of feeling he could not end it on a bad note, like on a sad note, even if it didn't wasn't as satisfying as a, a truly tragic ending. Because I, I don't think that it's the, a particularly satisfying ending, but I can understand why he would want to do that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a... I, Agreed. Like it's not as it comes out of nowhere, right? It's not as, uh, yeah, it's not as upsetting as if he had just ended with him actually like self-immolating and that being the end of it. But I think in a soft way, I actually wanted wanted it to end with him selling that can to someone, and that's how it. <laughs> I mean, that would have been no, very like, cynical. I think that would have been how it should have ended. As, as Interesting. A, I mean, that would have been like that would have been like more cynical in a way that I think. The movie's not, like, cynical exactly. It's just, it it doesn't seem, like, it's a movie about an artist that seems to reject the notion that art provides any kind of solace in life. And the final sequence is not the most radical uh, expression of that, per se, but that is essentially the idea. Like, they just walk away from their artistic life because it has provided them nothing but trouble and sadness and grief. Sure, and and again, I, I don't want to like pick on the ending because I, I get it, and it certainly doesn't bother me too much. Um, but I, I don't. I think it just comes out of nowhere, mm-hmm. and I don't think it is thematically consistent uh, with, or rather, it's not. It is thematically consistent, but it's not totally consistent. Yes, agreed. Scene. Also, I, I think this is one of his just most beautiful movies. Um, you know, especially watching the other two, they're certainly not bad. Uh, they're actually quite uh, sharp, and as I said, there's a lot of uh, really great cutting um, and to uh, you know, great effect in, in both the movies uh, in different ways. But just in terms of um, you know pure pictorial beauty, uh, this is uh, the best of the three uh, that I think we've seen today, and. Just some of his strongest work in general. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree that it's, I think, the, the best of the three in terms of the way that it looks. I think partly that's because he is able, given the structure here, which is more conventional, to like build these sequences in a way that is more resonant. Like, as you described, that whole sequence where he paints the room red. I mean, that's kind of the, like, in some ways, that's like the emotional climax of, of the film. And you could have, a, you could envision a moment of, that kind of like visual extremity happening in the other two films, but it would not have the emotional weight that it does um, in this one, I think uh, given what comes before it. So, yeah. It also in, in really uh, interrogates uh, the myth of both the uh, starving artist and the unappreciated genius um, in ways that I think really work as it's, uh, in a biopic structure, it's of course one a biopic of a person who never existed, but uh, nevertheless, I, I think uh, it's worth looking at uh, from that angle. But as I said, I genuinely think that um, while it does not, while we are not supposed to forgive his later actions in life, um, we are supposed to view. Uh, what happened to him as a prodigy through circumstance being essentially snuffed out creatively um, 
at a young age. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll buy it. You've convinced me. You've convinced me. I mean, of that he's reading. going to go to uh, France. Uh, they said at the beginning, and I know that that was because of his father, to an extent. But uh, <clears throat> I think at a certain point, he would not have made it. But I, as you said, I've convinced you, so I don't need to <laughs> keep going on. Is you admit that I'm right about <laughs> That's everything? That's all you want to hear. I'm assuming you mean about everything. Is, is that when you say you, I convinced you, mm-hmm. you mean I'm right about everything that we've as, ever talked about? As always. <laughs> yes. So. Uh, I, I'm really glad that we were able to talk about these three films. Uh, yeah, my appreciation of Achilles just continues to grow as we talk about it because, um, yeah, it is a, a very rich um, and, and very um, moving movie. But. You know, I, I think we could have done at least the first and the third films in other uh, categories like the first we could have paired with something um, that is uh, about filmmaking and, and uh, more self more self reflexive films on that and the second one too although I think that mainly as a comedy might not stick as well with that Petty Cab Driver about, Chicken and yeah, Talk and uh, exactly <laughs> the and, and, and you know Achilles uh, you know could pair with other painter films but. I am glad that we looked at these three together because after his celebrated 90s work, I, I'm i not sure that people are necessarily looking at Katana unless they're looking at his uh, Outrage trilogy, which again, I, have, I haven't seen and I am interested, but based on his uh, expressed dissatisfaction with making Yakuza movies in the first two movies that we talked about today... Uh, yeah. I'm not sure that he's been given the sort of attention that he wants to be given. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, no, I agree. I mean, I think I've, I've only seen the first Outrage film, and it does, in my memory, has been a while, seem a little bit anonymous, whereas these films, regardless of whether or not I think they're entirely successful at every moment, are unquestionably personal in a way that um, I think the films themselves... Uh, suggest the Yakuza films are, are perhaps not. Um, and so, yeah, I think it would uh, it would be nice to see uh, Kitano get, at this point in his career, a little more uh, recognition for these sort of unusual, um, very singular films as opposed to just the, the gangster stuff. But the gangster stuff sells, so we'll probably keep, keep hearing about that. But we'll always have uh, Achilles. Well, uh, thanks for listening. And we hope to record again soon. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>